Why is seminary so expensive? At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, we are committed to the reform of theological education toward meeting the needs of churches across the globe. Men of God cannot serve their churches well if they are burdened with tens of thousands of dollars in student loans from seminary. At CBTS, you can receive a robust theological education for nearly four times less than other institutions. To find out more about how you can receive an accredited theological degree at a cost that you can afford, visit cbtseminary.org. The Biography of Robert Murray McChain by Andrew Bonar His First Years of Labor in Dundee The day on which he was ordained pastor of a flock was a day of much anxiety to his soul. He journeyed by Perth to spend the night proceeding under the roof of his kind friend, Mr. Grierson, in the manse of Errol. The next morning before he left the manse, Three passages of scripture occupied his mind. Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace, his mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Isaiah 26.3 This verse was seasonable, for as he sat meditating on the solemn duties of the day, his heart trembled. Number two, give thyself wholly to thee things, 1 Timothy 4 verse 15. May that word he prayed sink deep into my heart. Number three, here am I, send me, Isaiah 6, verse 8, to go or to stay, to be here till death, or to visit foreign shores, whatsoever, wheresoever, whensoever you please. He rose from his knees with a prayer, Lord, may thy grace come with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. He was ordained on November 24th, 1836. The service was conducted by Mr. Roxburgh at St. John's, through whose exertions the new church had been erected, and whoever afterward cherished the most cordial friendship toward him. On the Sabbath following, he was introduced to his flock by Mr. John Bonar of Larbert, with whom he had labored as a son in the gospel. He preached in the afternoon on Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and so on of which he writes, may it be prophetic, of the object of my coming here, and truly it was so. That very sermon, the first preached by him as a pastor, was a means of awakening souls, as he learned later, and ever onward the impressions left by his words seemed to spread and deepen among his people. To keep up the remembrance of this solemn day, he used in all the subsequent years of his ministry to preach from the same text on the anniversary of his ordination. In the evening of that day, Mr. Bonar again preached on These Times of Refreshing, a noble sermon, showing the marks of such times. Ah, oh, when shall we have them here? Lord, bless this word to help their coming. Put your blessing upon this day felt given over to God as one bought with a price. There was a rapid growth in his soul, perceptible to all who knew him well from this time. Even his pulpit preparations, he used to say, became easier from this date. 
He had earnestly sought that the day of his ordination might be a time of new grace. He expected it would be so, and there was a peculiar work to be done by his hands for which the Holy Spirit speedily prepared him. His diaries does not contain much of his feeling during his residence in Dundee. His incessant labors left him little time, except what he scrupulously spent in the direct exercises of devotion. But what we have seen of his manner of study and self-examination at Larbert is sufficient to show in what a constant state of cultivation his soul was kept, and his habits in these respects continued with him to the last. Jeremy Taylor recommends, quote, If thou meanest to enlarge thy religion, do it rather by enlarging thine ordinary devotions than thy extraordinary. This advice describes very accurately the plan of spiritual life on which Mr. McChain acted. He did occasionally set apart seasons for special prayer and fasting, occupying the time so set apart exclusively in devotion. But the real secret of his soul's prosperity lay in the daily enlargement of his heart, in fellowship with his God, in a river deepened as it flowed on to eternity, so that he at least reached a feature of a holy pastor which Paul pointed out to Timothy. His profiting did appear to all. In his own house, everything was fitted to make it feel that the service of God was a cheerful service, while he sought that every arrangement of the family should bear upon eternity. His morning hours were set apart for the nourishment of his own soul, not, however, with a view of laying up a stock of grace for the rest of the day, for manna will corrupt if laid by, but rather with the view of giving the eye the habit of looking upward all the day and drawing down gleams from the reconciled countenance. He was sparing in the hours devoted to sleep and resolutely secured time for devotion before breakfast, although often wearied and exhausted when he laid himself to rest. A soldier of the cross, was his remark, must endure hardness. Often he sang a psalm of praise as soon as he arose to stir up his soul. Three chapters of the word was his usual morning portion. This he thought little enough, for he delighted exceedingly in the scriptures. They were better to him than thousands of gold or silver. When you write, he said to a friend, tell me the meaning of scriptures. To another, in expressing his value for the word, he said, one gem from that ocean is worth all the pebbles of earthly streams. His chief season of relaxation seemed to be breakfast time. He would come down with a happy countenance and a full soul, and after the sweet season of family prayer, immediately began forming plans for the day. When he was well, nothing seemed to afford him such true delight as to have his hands full of work. Indeed, it was often remarked that in him you found what you rarely meet with, a man of high poetic imagination and deep devotion, who nevertheless was engaged unceasingly in the busiest and most laborious activities of his office. His friend could observe how much his soul was engrossed during his times of study of devotion. If interrupted on such occasions, though he never seemed ruffled, Yet there was a kind of gravity and silence that implied a wish to be alone. But he further aimed at enjoying God all the day, 
and referring on one occasion to those blank house, which so often are a believer's burden, hours during which the soul is dry and barren. He observed, Dear Prus, of how little we are filled with the presence of God, how little we are a branch, like Zechariah 4 verse 12, John 15 verse 5, and our faith. This careful attention to the frame of his spirit did not hinder his preparation for his people. On the contrary, it kept alive his deep conscientiousness and kept his warm compassion ever yearning when asked to observe a Saturday as a day of fasting and prayer. Along with some others who had a special object in view, he replied, Saturday is an awkward day for ministers, for though I love to seek help from on high, I love also diligently to set my thoughts in order for the Sabbath. I sometimes fear that you fail in this latter duty. During his first years in Dundee, he often rode out in an afternoon to the ruined church to enjoy an hour's perfect solitude, for he felt meditation and prayer to be the very sinews of his work. Such notices also as the following show a systematic pursuit of personal holiness. Quote, April 9th. 1837, evening, a very pleasant quietness, study of the epistle to the Hebrews, came to a more intelligent view of the first six chapters than ever before, much refreshed by John Newton, instructed by Jonathan Edwards, help and freedom in prayer, Lord, what a happy season is a Sabbath evening, what will heaven be? April 16th, Sabbath evening, much prayer and peace, reading the Bible only, June 2nd, much peace and rest tonight, much broken under a sense of my exceeding wickedness, which no eye can see but thine, much persuasion of the sufficiency of Christ and of the constancy of his love. Oh, how sweet to work all day for God, and then to lie down at night under his smiles. June 17th, 1838, at Dumbarney, Communion, much sin and coldness two days before, I lay low at his feet, found peace only in Jesus. September 25th, spent last week in blaggery, I hope not in vain, much sin, Weakness and uselessness. Much delight in the word also. While opening it up. It's family prayer. God make the word fire. Open for Thessalonians. The whole enriching to my own mind. How true is Psalm 1. Yet. Observed in my heart. A strange proneness to be entangled with the affairs of this life. Not strange because I am good, but because I have been so often taught that bitterness is the end of it. September 27th, devoted the chief part of Friday to fasting, humbled and refreshed. September 30th, Sabbath, very happy in my work, to a little prayer in the morning. Must try to get to bed early on Saturday, that I may rise a great while before day. These early hours of prayer on Sabbath he endeavored to have all his life, not for study, but for prayer. He never labored into sermons on a Sabbath. That day he kept for its original end, the refreshment of his soul. Exodus thirty-one seventeen. The parish of St. Peter's, to which he had come, was large and very destitute. 
It is situated at the west end of the town and included some part of the adjacent country. The church was built in connection with the church extension scheme. The parish was a quarried sacra parish detached from St. John's. It contains a population of 4,000 souls, very many of whom have never crossed the threshold of any sanctuary. Congregation amounted at the very outset to about 1,100 hearers, one-third of whom came from distant parts of the town. Here was a wide field for parochial labor. It was also a very dead region. Few even of those who were living Christians breathing their lives on others, for the surrounding mass of impenetrable heathenism had cast a sad influence even over them. His first impressions of Dundee were severe. Quote, a city given to idolatry and hardness of heart. I fear there is much of what Isaiah speaks of. The prophets prophesy lies, and the people love to have it so. His first months of labor were very trying. He was not strong enough in bodily health, and that winter a fatal influenza prevailed for two or three months, so that most of his time in his parish was spent in visiting the sick and dying. In such cases, he was always ready. Oh, did I tell you of the boy I was asked to see on Sabbath evening? Just when I got myself comfortably seated at home, I went and was speaking to him of the freeness and fullness of Jesus. When he gasped a little, and died. In one of his first visits to the sick, the narrative of the Lord's singular dealings with one of his parishioners greatly encouraged him to carry the glad tidings to the distressed under every disadvantage. Four years before, a young woman had been seized with cholera and was deprived of the use of speech for a whole year. The Bible was read to her. The men of God used to speak and pray with her. At the end of the year, her tongue was loosed, and the first words heard from her lips were praise and thanksgiving for what the Lord had done for her soul. It was in her chamber. It was now standing, hearing from her own lips what the Lord had wrought. On another occasion, during the first year of his ministry, he witnessed the deathbed conversion of a man who, till within a few days of his end, almost denied that there was a God. This solid conversion, as he believed it to be, stirred him up to speak with all hopefulness as well as earnestness to the dying. But it was above all to the children of God that his visitation seemed blessed. His voice and his very eye spoke tenderness, for personal affliction had taught him to feel sympathy with the sorrowing, though the following be an extract from a letter yet it will be recognized by many as exhibiting his mode of dealing with God's afflicted ones and his visitation. There is a sweet word in Exodus 3 verse 7, which was pointed out to me the other day by a poor bereaved child of God. I know their sorrows. Study that. It fills the soul. Another word like it is in Psalm 103 verse 14. He knoweth our frame. May your own soul and that of your dear friends be fed by thee things. A dark hour makes Jesus bright. Another sweet word. They knew not that it was Jesus, in quote. I find some specimens of his sick visits among his papers, noted down at a time when his work had not grown upon his hands. January 25th. 
1837, visited McBain, a young woman of 24, long ill of decline. Better or worse, these ten years passed. Spoke of the one thing needful plainly. She sat quiet. February 14th, had heard she was better. Found her near dying. Spoke plainly and tenderly to her. Commending Christ. Used many texts. She put out her hand kindly on leaving. Fifteenth, still dying-like. Spoke as yesterday. She never opened her eyes. Sixteenth, showed her the dreadfulness of wrath, freeness of Christ, to majesty, justice, truth of God. For M as fast going away when she shall not return. Many neighbors also always gather in. On the seventeenth, read Psalm 22, showed the sufferings of Christ, a sufficient an atonement, of feeling a high priest, she breathed loud and groaned through pain, died this evening at seven. I hardly ever heard her speak anything, and I will hope that thou art with Christ in glory till I go and see. Twentieth, prayed at her funeral, saw her laid in St. Peter's churchyard, to first laid there by her own desire, in the fresh mold where never man was laid. May it be a token that she is with him who is laid in a new tomb. End quote. He records another case. January 4th, 1837. Sent for Miss S. Very ill. Asthmatic. Spoke on no condemnation to them that are in Christ. She said, But am I in Christ? seemingly very anxious, said she had often been so and had let it go by. The fifth, still living, spoke to her of Christ and full salvation. Myself was confined in the house till the sixteenth, much worse, not anxious to hear, yet far from rest, irk, uneasy eye. She asked me what is it to believe spoke to her on God who made light shine out of darkness. She seemed to take up nothing. Lord, help. Seventeenth, still worse, were in a way, no smile, no sign of inward peace, spoke of, remember me, went over the whole gospel in the form of personal address. She was drowsy. On the eighteenth, quieter, my Lord and my God, she spoke at intervals, more cheerful, anxious that I should not go without prayer. She has much knowledge, complete command of the Bible. Nineteenth, spoke on convincing of sin and righteousness, rather more heart to hear. Twentieth, Psalm 51, her look and her words were lightsome. Twenty-third, faintish and restless, no sign of peace. I am the way, in Psalm 25. Twenty-fourth, still silent, and little sign of anything. The twenty-sixth, Psalm 40, the fearful pit, very plain, could not get anything out of her. February 1st, died at twelve noon, no visible mark of light, or comfort, or hope.
but the day shall declare it. One other case, quote, February 5th, 1839, called suddenly in the evening, found him near death, careless family, many round him, spoke of the freeness and sufficiency of Jesus, come unto me, and so on, and the wrath of God revealed from heaven, told him he was going where he would see Christ, asked him if he would be his savior. He seemed to answer. His father said he is saying yes, but it was a throw of death, one or two indescribable gasps, and he died. I sat silent and let God preach. Seventh, spoke of the widow of Nain, and behold, I stand at the door. Attendance at funerals was often to him a season of much exercise. Should it not be to all ministers a time for solemn inquiry? Was I faithful with this soul? Could this soul have learned salvation from me every time I saw him? And did I pray as fervently as I spoke? And if we have tender pity for souls, we will sometimes feel, as Mr. McChain records, quote, September 24th, buried, A.M., felt bitterly the word, if any man draw back, and so on, never had more bitter feelings at any funeral, end quote. All who make any pretension to the office of shepherds visit their flocks, yet there is a wide difference in the kind of visits that shepherds give. One does it formally, to discharge his duty, and to quiet his conscience. Another makes it his delight, and of those who make it their delight, one goes forth on the regular plan of addressing all in somewhat of the same style, while another speaks freely, according as the wounds of his sheep come to view. On all occasions, this difficult and trying work must be gone about with a full heart, if it is to be gone about successfully at all. There is little in it to excite, for there is not the presence of numbers, and if you, you see at a time are in their calmest everyday mood. Hence there is need of being full of grace, and need of feeling, as though God did visit every hearer by your means. Our object is not to get duty done, but to get souls saved. Second Corinthians 13 verse 7 Mr. McJane used to go forth in this spirit, and often after visiting from house to house for several hours, he would return to some room in the place in the evening and preach to the gathered families. Quote, September 26, 1838. Good visiting day. Twelve families. Many of them go nowhere. It is a great thing to be well furnished by meditation and prayer about setting out. It makes you a far more full and faithful witness. Preached in A.F.'s house on Job. I know that my Redeemer lives very sweet and precious to myself, partly from a state of health and partly from the vast accumulation of other labors and the calls made on him for evangelizing elsewhere. He was never able to overtake the visitation of the whole district assigned him. He was blessed to attract and reclaim many of the most degraded, and by Sabbath schools and a regular eldership, to take superintendence of the population to a great extent. 
Still, he himself often said that his parish had never fully shared in the advantages that attend an aggressive system of parochial labor. Once, when spending a day in the rural parish of Cullis, as we went in the afternoon from door to door and spoke to the children whom we met on the roadside, he smiled and said, quote, Well, how I envy a country minister, for he can get acquainted with all his people and have some insight into their real character. Many of us thought that he afterward erred in the abundant frequency of his evangelistic labors at a time when he was still bound to a particular flock. He had an evening class every week for the young people of his congregation. The catechism and the Bible were his textbooks. While he freely introduced all manner of useful illustrations, he thought himself bound to prepare diligently for his classes that he might give accurate and simple explanations and unite what was interesting with the most solemn and awakening views. But it was his class for young communicants that engaged his deepest care and wherein he saw the most success. He began a class of this kind previous to his first communion and continued to form it again some weeks before every similar occasion. His tract, published in 1840, this do in remembrance of me, may be considered as exhibiting the substance of a solemn examination on these occasions. He usually noted down his first impressions of his communicants, and compared his notes with what he saw afterward in them. Thus, quote, M. K., sprightly and lightsome, yet sensible, she saw plainly that the converted alone should come to the table, but stumbled at the question, if she were converted, yet she claimed being awakened and brought to Christ, in quote, on another, very staid, intelligent-like person, with a steady kind of anxiety, but I fear no feeling of helplessness, thought that sorrow and prayer would obtain forgiveness, told her plainly what I thought of her case. Another, no, she was once Christless, now she reads and prays and is anxious. I doubt not there is some anxiety, yet I fear it may be only a self-reformation to recommend herself to God and to man. And I told her plainly, A.M. I fear much for him. Give him a token with much anxiety and warmed him very much. C.P. does not seem to have any work of anxiety. He reads prayer books and so on does not pray in secret, seems not very intelligent. He sought to encourage Sabbath schools in all the districts of his parish. To him, oil for the lamp, was written to impress a parable on a class of Sabbath scholars in 1841. Some of his sweet, simple tracts were written for these schools. Reasons why children should fly to Christ was a first, written in the new year 1839 and the lambs of the flock was another at a later period. His heart felt for the young. One evening, after visiting some of his Sabbath schools, he writes, had considerable joy in teaching the children. Oh, for real heart work among them. He could accommodate himself to their capacities, and he did not consider it vain to use his talents 
in order to attract our attention, for he regarded the soul of a child as infinitely precious, ever watchful for opportunities. On the blank leaf of a book, which he had sent to a little boy of his congregation, he wrote these simple lines. Peace be to thee, gentle boy, many years of health and joy, love your Bible more than play, grow in wisdom every day, like the lark on hovering wing, early rise and mount and sing, like the dove that found no rest till it flew to Noah's breast. Rest not in the world of sin till the Savior take thee in. He had a high standard in his mind as to the moral qualifications of those who should teach the young. When a female teacher was sought to conduct an evening school in his parish, for the sake of the mill girls, he wrote to one interested in the cause, quote, The qualifications she should possess for sewing and knitting, you will understand far better than I. She should be able to keep up in her scholars' affluency of reading and the knowledge of the Bible and catechism, which they may have already acquired. She should be able to teach them to sing the praises of God with feeling and melody. But, far above all, she should be a Christian woman, not in name only, but in deed and in truth, one whose heart has been touched by the Spirit of God and who can love the souls of little children. Any teacher who wanted this last qualification I would look upon as a curse rather than a blessing, a center of blasting and coldness and death, instead of a center from which life and warmth and heavenly influence might emanate. End quote. It was very soon after his ordination that he began his weekly prayer meeting in the church. He had heard how meetings of this kind had been blessed in other places, and never had he any cause to regret having set apart the Thursday evening for this holy purpose. One of its first effects was to quicken those who had already believed. They were often refreshed on these occasions even more than on the Sabbath. Some of the most solemn seasons of his ministry were at those meetings. At their commencement, he wrote to me an account of his manner of conducting them. Quote, I give my people a scripture to be hidden in the heart, generally a promise of the Spirit or the wonderful effects of its outpouring. I give them the heads of a sermon upon it for about twenty minutes. Prayer goes before and follows after. Then I read some history of revivals and comment in passing. I think the people are very interested in it. A number of people come from all parts of the town. But, oh, I need much the living spirit to my own soul. I want my life to be hid with Christ and God. At present, there is too much hurry and bustle and outward working to allow the calm working of the spirit on the heart. I seldom get time to meditate like Isaac at evening tide, except when I am tired but the dew comes down when all nature is at rest, when every leaf is still. End quote. An example of the happy freedom and familiar illustrations that his people felt to be peculiar to these meetings may be found in the notes taken by one of his hearers. 
of expositions of the epistles to the seven churches, given during the year 1838. He had himself great delight in the Thursday evening meetings. Quote, they will doubtless be remembered in eternity with songs of praise. He said on one occasion, and at another time, observing the tender frame of a soul that was often manifested at these seasons, he said, There is a stillness to the last word, not as on Sabbath, a rushing down at the end of the prayer, as if glad to get out of God's presence. So many believing, and so many inquiring souls used to attend, so few of the worldings that you seem to breathe the atmosphere of heaven. But it was his Sabbath day services that brought multitudes together, and were soon felt throughout the town. He was ever so ready to assist his brethren, so much engaged in every good work, and also so often interrupted by inquiries, that it might be thought he had no time for careful preparation, and might be excused for the absence of it. But, in truth, he never preached without careful attention bestowed on a subject. He might indeed have a little time often. The hours of a Saturday was all the time he could manage. But his daily study of the scriptures stored his mind and formed a continual preparation. Much of his Sabbath services was a drawing out of what he had carried in during busy days of the week. His voice was remarkably clear, his manner attractive by its mild dignity. His form itself drew the eye. He spoke from the pulpit as one earnestly occupied with the souls before him. He made them feel sympathy with what he spoke, for his own eye and heart were on them. He was at the same time able to bring out illustrations at once simple and felicitous often with poetic skill and elegance. He wished to use Saxon words for the sake of being understood by the most illiterate in his audience. And while his style was singularly clear, this clearness itself was so much the consequence of his being able thoroughly to analyze and explain his subject that all his hearers alike reaped the benefit. He went about his community work with awesome reverence. So evident was this that I remember a countryman in my parish observed to me, before he opened his lips, as he came along the passage, there was something about him that sorely affected me. In the vestry there was never any idle conversation, always preparation of heart and approaching God and a short prayer preceded his entering the pulpit. Surely in going forth to speak for God, a man may well be overawed. Surely in putting forth his hand to sow the seed of the kingdom, a man may even tremble. And surely we should aim at nothing less than to pour forth the truth on our people through the channel of our own living and deeply affected souls. After announcing the subject of his discourse, he generally used to show the position it occupied in the context, and then proceeded to bring out the doctrines of the text in a manner of our old divines. This done, he divided his subject, and herein he was eminently skillful. 
To heads of his sermon, said a friend, were not the milestones that tell you how near you are to your journey's end, but they were nails which fixed and fastened all, he said. Divisions are often dry, but not so his divisions. They were so textual and so feeling, and they brought out the spirit of a passage so surprisingly. It was his wish to arrive closer to the primitive mode of expounding scripture in his sermons. Therefore, when one asked him if he was never afraid of running short of sermons, some day he replied, No, I am just an interpreter of scripture in my sermons. And when the Bible runs dry, then I shall. And in the same spirit, he carefully avoided the common mode of accommodating texts, fastening a doctrine on the words, not drawing it from the obvious connection of the passage. He endeavored at all times to preach the mind of the Spirit in a passage, for he feared that to do otherwise would be to grieve the Spirit who had written it. Interpretation was thus a solemn manner to him, and yet, adhering scrupulously to this sure principle, he felt himself in no way restrained from using for every day's necessities all parts of the Old Testament as much as the New. His manner was first to ascertain the primary sense and application, and so proceed to handle it for present use. Thus, on Isaiah 26, verses 16 to 19, he began, This passage, I believe, refers literally to the conversion of God's ancient people. He regarded the prophecies as history yet to be, and drew lessons from them accordingly as he would have done from the past. Every spiritual gift being in the hands of Jesus, if he found Moses or Paul in the possession of precious things, he immediately was led to follow them into the presence of that same Lord, who gave them all their grace. There is a wide difference between preaching doctrine and preaching Christ. Mr. McChain preached all the doctrines of Scripture as understood by our confession of faith, dwelling on ruin by the fall, and recovery by the mediator, the things of the human heart, and the things of the divine mind were in substance his constant theme. From personal experience of deep temptation, he could lay open the secrets of the heart, so that he once said, he supposed the reason why some of the worst sinners in Dundee had come to hear him was because his heart exhibited so much likeness to theirs. Still, it was not doctrine alone that he preached. It was Christ, from whom all doctrine shoots forth as rays from a center. He sought to hang every vessel in battle on him. It is strange, he wrote, after preaching on Revelation 1 verse 15. It is strange how sweet and precious it is to preach directly about Christ compared with all other subjects of preaching and he often expressed a dislike of the phrase given attention to religion, because it seemed to substitute doctrine in a devout way of thinking for Christ himself. It is difficult to convey to those who never knew him a correct idea of the sweetness and holy unction of his preaching. Some of his sermons, printed from his own manuscripts, although almost all are first copies, may convey a correct idea of his style, 
and mode of preaching doctrine, but there are no notes that give any true idea of his affectionate appeals to the heart and searching applications. These he seldom wrote. They were poured forth at the moment when his heart filled with the subject, for his rule was to set before his hearers a body of truth. First, and there always was a vast amount of Bible truth in his discourses, and then urge home the application. His exhortations flowed from his doctrine, and thus had both variety and power. He was systematic in this, for he observed appeals to the careless, and so on, come with power on the back of some massy truth. See how Paul does it in Acts 13, verse 40. Beware therefore, lest, and so on. In Hebrews 2, verse 1, therefore we should heed. He was sometimes a little unguarded in his statements when his heart was deeply moved and his feelings stirred, and sometimes he was too long in his addresses. But this also arose from the fullness of his soul. Another word he thought may be blessed, though the last has made no impression. Many will remember forever the blessed communion Sabbath that were enjoyed at St. Peter's. From the very first, these communion seasons were remarkably owned of God. The awe of his presence used to be upon his people, and a house filled with the odor of the ointment. When his name was poured forth, Song of Solomon 1 verse 3, but on common Sabbath, also many soon began to journey long distances to attend St. Peter's. Many from country parishes who had returned home with their hearts burning as they talked of what they had heard that day. Mr. McChain knew the snare of popularity and naturally was one that would have been fascinated by it. But the Lord kept him. He was sometimes extraordinarily helped in his preaching. But at other times, though not perceived by his hearers, his soul felt as if left to its own resources. The cry of Roland Hill was continually on his lips, Master, help, and often is it written at the close of his sermon. Much affliction also was a thorn in the flesh to him. He described himself as often strong as a giant when in the church, but like a willow wand when all was over. But certainly, above all, his abiding sense of the divine favor was his safeguard. He began his ministry in Dundee with his sunshine on his way. Quote, As yet I have been kept, not only in the light of his reconciled countenance, but very much under the guiding eye of our providing God. Indeed, as I remember good old sorts used to say, I could not have imagined that he could have been so gracious to us. I believe that while he had some deeper conflicts, he also had far deeper joy after his return from Palestine than in the early part of his ministry, though from the very beginning of it he enjoyed the sense of the love of God that keeps the heart and mind. Philippians 4 verse 7 This was the true secret of his holy walk and of his calm humility. But for this, his ambition would have become the only principle of many in action. But now the sweeter love of God constrained him, and the natural ambition of his spirit could be discerned only as suggesting to him the idea of making attempts that others would have declined. But monotony there is in the ministry of many. 
duty presses on the hills of duty in an endless circle. But it is not so when the Spirit is quickening both the pastor and his flock. Then there is all the variety of life. It was so here. The Lord began to work by his means almost from the first day he came. There was always one or another stricken and going apart to weep alone. The flocking of souls to his ministry and a deep interest excited drew the attention of many and raised a wish in some quarters to have him as their pastor. He had not engaged many months in his laborious work when he was invited to move to the parish of Skirling near Bigar. It was an offer that presented great advantages above his own field of labors to worldly gain, and in respect to the prospect, it held out comparative ease and comfort, for the parish was small and the salary great. But as it required of a bishop that he be not greedy of filthy lucre, nay, that he be one who has no love of money, 1 Timothy 3 verse 3, so was it true that in him these qualifications eminently shone. His remarks in a letter to his father contain the honest expression of his feelings. I am set down among nearly 4,000 people. 1,100 people have taken seats in my church. I bring my message, such as it is, within the reach of that great company every Sabbath day. I dare not leave three or 4,000 for 300 people. Had this been offered me before, I would have seen it a direct intimation from God. I would hardly have embraced it. How oh, I should have delighted to feed so precious a little flock, to watch over every family, to know every heart, to allure to brighter worlds and lead the way. But God has not so ordered it. He has set me down among the noisy mechanics and political weavers of this godless town. He will make the money sufficient. He that paid his taxes from a fish's mouth will supply all my need. He had already expressed a hope. Perhaps the Lord will make his wilderness of chimney tops to be green and beautiful as a garden of the Lord, a field which the Lord himself has blessed. His health was delicate. In the harassing care and endless fatigue incident to his position in a town like Dundee seemed unsuitable to his spirit. This belief led to another attempt to remove him to a country area. Summer of the same year, 1837, he was strongly urged to preach as a candidate for the vacant parish of St. Martin's near Perth, and was assured of the appointment if he would only come forward. But he declined again. My master has placed me here with his own hand, and I never will directly or indirectly seek to be removed.